Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. There's nothing like the power of a new life. And uh, on this Easter, there are really two phrases that uh, are really a fitting summary for the morning that we're celebrating here. And the first has already been amply illustrated with Bill's life, and that is that Easter can be summed up as new life. You know, I was with Bill the day, as he mentioned, of his spiritual birth. I was there to witness that. I've had the privilege just in the last few weeks to uh, stand in the Jordan River with Bill and celebrate that new life with the ordinance of baptism and to baptize him. But I, I want you to know, it never, ever ceases to amaze me that I can be in this moment of time, this small sliver of time, and watch somebody utter a single prayer and then watch their whole life be forever altered. That's a miracle. That really is. That's a miracle. Uh, to see that within their heart they are forever bent towards the good the godly, that something has been created in them that would have been impossible with all kinds of training and indoctrination that urges them, moves them, compels them to seek Jesus Christ for the rest of their life, to seek His righteousness, to, to strive for His kingdom. That's an incredible moment. It's an awesome moment. And if it were just to happen just to Bill uh, on just one occasion, then we could say it was some personality quirk that had to do just with him, confined just within his life. It's just Bill's thing. But the reality is, for any of us who know, it's not confined to a life. It spreads to lives all over the world, uh, from different cultures, from the least to the greatest, from the wealthiest to the poorest. It transcends time and cultures and peoples and races. It's an incredible moment. It moves from things like uh, what you saw on TV just recently when the UCLA basketball team came rushing out on the court uh, at the end of the game with Arkansas, but they rushed out to center court not to celebrate, but to pray, to kneel in that center circle and to offer up thanks because of two assistant coaches who several years ago were invited onto that team who were Christians who in the last several years have not only recruited those athletes, but they've brought them to this moment of time that has forever altered their destiny. And after the first service, I found out that one of those coaches was discipled by a man in our church and brought him to faith in Christ. Those are awesome things to think. And to think that there could be someone on death row who's been confined to a prison cell, but suddenly those walls no longer hold him. He's free and he's found the forgiveness that he's always looked for. But it all happens in a moment of time. And that's the miracle of Easter. That's the witness of Easter. It can be summed up in new life. You know, you have to think from time to time on this Easter, where else can you find something like that? Can you find it in a hospital? Can you find it in a classroom with a teacher? Can you find it through rehabilitation, some training center, counseling, through military experience, a job? Where is it that there's this moment of time that so 
transforms the life that it's never the same. Those things, you know, they can, they can elevate the mind. Uh, they can enrich the heart. Uh, they can offer rich experiences to the life. But there's not one of those things that I just mentioned that can change it. Totally rearrange it. Radically alter it. None of them with all their resources, with their billions of dollars of assets, with their great facilities, their instructors, their training, their tools, their techniques, their years of indoctrination, not one of them with all that in mind have the power to reach inside the human heart and make it good. To reach inside the soul and let it feel free and new again. That's the power of Easter. In an instant, the old life is gone. In an instant, the nagging guilt is relieved. And there is a sense of moral purpose for the first time that's, that's etched on the soul. There's a sense of new life that's engraved on the heart. And it's because Easter stands for new life because that's what came out of the tomb. You know, Easter also can be summed up in the phrase, great comebacks. I'm like you, I like to see and read stories of great comebacks. Uh, the story of Helen Keller, you know, is a great comeback of a woman of massive infirmities and overcome those and the life that she lived. It's incredible. I'm amazed when I read about the political defeats of Abraham Lincoln, one after another, but he kept coming back until finally he became one of our most beloved presidents. I laugh when I look at the face of George Foreman who after 40, smiled and ate hamburgers all the way back to the world championship. That's an incredible comeback. And I think of my own life and I reminisce and remember that one of the great moments of my life revolved around a comeback. It was 1969. It was December. It was cold. I was a sophomore linebacker on a team, the last Arkansas football team to play for the national championship. And it had all the the hype and glory of these past two seasons when the whole state of Arkansas has just been riveted on the march to the Final Four. In 1969, we had a president come to our game, too, to award the trophy to the national championship team who won that game, President Nixon. We had Billy Graham there. He flew in just to give the invocation. It was college football's 100th year at Centennial, and that just simply breathed even more magic into this incredible season as both teams, Texas and Arkansas, went through the season undefeated and found themselves on a Saturday afternoon in December, the only college football game being played in all of America. And all eyes were transfixed on Fayetteville. Now, some of you were there. It's been fun to talk to some after the service. But you'll remember we had Texas down 14 to nothing in the fourth quarter. And it should have been 21 to nothing in the fourth quarter, but a member of this congregation <laughs> threw an illegal block downfield and one of the touchdowns was called back. When we got into the fourth quarter, I can remember watching as an athlete the football players from the University of Texas. You know, you sense in a game when you're about to finally close the door on an opponent. And when the fourth quarter came and as they began to break huddle, you could see these great Texas football players begin to just, their heads began to go down. Death began to set in. Uh, they were the greatest running team in college football that year and they couldn't do anything against our team. 
And I began to gloat inside. And I remember, I will never forget the moment where right in the middle of the fourth quarter, I turned and looked into the stands from the sidelines and there was a good friend who had come up from Louisiana to see us play. And I had the audacity to raise my hand and show him my ring finger. It was my signal to him that I couldn't wait to wear that diamond ring that said national champions. And with my back turned to the field, looking up in the stands, I saw his face break and become contorted. And I heard the roar of the crowd and I turned around just in time to watch the Texas quarterback run in the end zone for what started to be this miraculous comeback. And when the gun sounded, it was 15 to 14. Now I'm not better or anything. <laughs> but you know, it should have been 21 to 15. It hadn't have been for a member in our congregation that threw an illegal down block. I'd have that ring on here this morning. See, there's two sides to a comeback. There's the side that's thrilled, and then there's the side that gnashed their teeth. And on this morning, 2,000 years ago, you had both sides. Because what we celebrate this morning is the greatest comeback of all. We celebrate Easter. We celebrate one and only one who has risen from the dead. And in rising from the dead, Jesus proved that he was more than what his critics said, just a man. By rising from the dead, he proved that his claims of deity were more than just blasphemy and exaggeration and self-delusion. By rising from the dead, he proved that his proclamations were more than just another do-good religion. And if you do good, you'll be okay. By rising from the dead, he proved that his movement would be more than just a footnote found in some annals of history. You see, by rising from the dead, History became his story, didn't it? By rising from the dead, Jesus became the perpetual giver of new life and the author who from that moment on offered a myriad of comebacks to men and women from all ages and cultures, glorious comebacks in their own personal lives. You know, on this Easter, what I don't, I, I'm not going to do this morning is to rehearse the, the myriad of evidence for the resurrection. I mean, we could talk long and hard about the empty tomb and the eyewitnesses, the failure of Jesus' en enemies to, to bring forth a body, which they could have easily done when this whole world was turned upside down on this day. We could talk about the transformation of the disciples from cowards to heroes. And if you read anything about their lives that followed, that each one of those men, except one, died a torturous, horrendous death never recanting of the truth that they had seen with their own eyes. Those are wonderful evidences, but on this Easter, let's assume that. And let's point to what I think is the greatest evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that is the new life that people have proclaimed and are proclaiming to this very day, like Bill Hoyg, that they have found in meeting firsthand, firsthand, the risen Lord. You see, this is not evidence this morning we're going to look at that can be resolved and researched in textbooks. This is evidence that you experience yourself in your own life. And I want you to know this morning I stand here and I possess that evidence. I have the living proof that's within me. And I want you to have the living proof within you. 
So let's turn to John chapter 5 for just a moment. If you have your Bibles, you might turn there. Uh, the story we're going to look at this morning is not about Jesus' resurrection, but it is a story about a personal resurrection and how a person finds new life in Christ. Because what's pictured here is a model, a model that's maintained throughout history that each one of us really have to follow as a pattern to find this new life that is offered in a risen Savior. But I want to make the point, even as we begin to look at this, is that if this is true, no longer will anyone have to prove to you that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Because if you experience that new life, the proof will be in you. That's the point. Let's look at John chapter 5. It begins, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem for it. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos or porches. I want to stop right there for just a moment because this introduces us to the drama that's about to unfold. And there's several things that are worth noting. You might look, first of all, in verse 1, it says a feast. Uh, there are some of your Bibles that have a little notation. It says the feast. Some manuscripts have the feast. And if it is in fact, the feast, he's talking about Passover, which the Jews just celebrated. And I think that affords well with the context here, because Passover speaks of sin and judgment, which this passage is going to talk about. And you remember in the Passover, the death angel went over Egypt and looked at the sin of the land and punished people for their sin with death. Passover also speaks of lambs and the blood of lambs. Because remember, the Jews put the blood over the doorpost and anywhere the death angel saw that blood, it would spare that house. And Passover speaks of mercy, that kind of mercy. Deserved death, but through blood, appeasement, and freedom, and mercy. Those are the things of Passover, the feast, and those are the things that are found within John chapter 5, because it speaks of sin, it speaks of judgment for sin, and it speaks of mercy through the blood of a lamb. In this case, the lamb. So Jesus is going up to the feast, to Passover. And notice he comes into Jerusalem through this sheep gate that we see mentioned in verse 2. And that's important for us because the sheep gate was one of 10 gates that you entered into the city of Jerusalem at that time. It was so named the sheep gate because just outside it, right outside it, right at the foot of the sheep gate was a place where they kept the sheep and the lambs that were to be used for sacrifice on Passover to spill their blood. So in a sense, you, you feel the drama a little bit because it's a fitting place for the Lamb of God to enter Passover through the Sheep Gate. I want you to notice it mentions also the Pool of Bethesda. The Pool of Bethesda was a watering hole. It was ornate, but it was a watering hole. And the priest kept the lambs and the sheep there. They watered them, they kept them, they cleaned them there at the Pool of Bethesda. And it became known in Hebrew as Bethesda because Bethesda means house of mercy. And you get that feeling the blood's going to come from these sheep and it's going to give us mercy because it's going to appease God's wrath. So you have all the drama that's taking place there. And that Bethesda is the same word we use for Bethesda Naval Hospital where we send our presidents to a house of mercy. And it's so named for this site. And I want you to know it's interesting too because I've just been there uh, just a few weeks ago. 
I stood at the excavations of the Pool of Bethesda. And you can stand there and you can look at the Pool of Bethesda. It's a creek that has a subterranean stream pulling, pulling water up into it. And there are still some of the remains as they've dug down through the centuries, there's still the remains there of some of these five porches that are mentioned here in John chapter five. We're talking real history. So the events of chapter five occur during Passover when people have, they have sin and judgment on their minds. Uh, it's a time where people are focused on unblemished lambs that are gonna be used, at least their blood, to find mercy before a holy God. And it's also a time where the Lamb of God stops by the house of mercy to offer some mercy of his own. Now you get the feeling of the drama that's about to unfold. Look at verse three. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at, a cer at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease which, with which he had been afflicted. And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. <clears throat> Now, in a very few places in the New Testament, and I say this is very rare, and I want you to look at your Bibles just for a moment, you'll find brackets around portions of Scripture. And uh, probably in your Bible, starting at the end of verse 3 where it says waiting, you'll see a bracket, and it'll, the other bracket will end at verse 4. And you might ask, well, why are those brackets there? They're there because scholars are wanting you to know that the oldest and best Greek manuscripts from which we get our New Testament do not contain the end of verse 3 and verse 4. Those have been inserted later and are probably not part of John's original writings, but were inserted later by someone who wanted you to understand why these people were gathered around this pool of Bethesda, why these sick people were. And what that brings to mind is that obviously there existed some superstition and the superstition just simply went like it reads that when the waters stirred, these waters, if somebody could get in, they would be healed. Now, I want you to know the waters at the Pool of Bethesda, they do stir from time to time. Even to this day, from that subterranean stream, water will bubble up and move the waters. But I also want you to know it's not an angel that's moving those waters. It's just the natural spring moving those waters. And this is just a superstition but it's telling you why all these people have gathered around this watering hole. I think William Barclay put it best. He summed it up when he said, the people who waited for the pool to be disturbed were just children of their age, believing in the things of their age. Now I want you to listen closely. They were children in this superstition, but they were not children in their hurts. What you see at the very first part of verse three is real. There are real hurts here. Some were blind, others were lame. Others, as we'll see in a moment, were suffering from a different kind of sickness and pain. And a lot of that was coming from the poor choices that they had made over their lifestyle. But all were there. Those who had real physical maladies and those who had deeper emotional and spiritual maladies, they were all there around these magical waters hoping for some quick fix, some cure, some relief from their desperate condition. Now I want you to think about what the site looked like. Because it's Passover, 
And there's a sense of sin and judgment for sin. And people have lambs and there have been lambs that are being slain. And all these people now have crowded into the city and all these hurting people have come to this kind of superstitious shrine and they're gathered maybe two, three, four deep. And you can all see them just kind of peering over, waiting to see who can jump in first the minute those tranquil, magical waters stir. But all of them have their back turned upon the gentleman who just walked up. The Lamb of God. The Lamb who takes away sin and judgment. The Lamb who offers miraculous grace and mercy. But they're too busy looking into these magical waters to see that He's arrived. Can you see that picture in your mind? Is that not a lot like our day? People desperately looking to, for some quick fix to their desperate situation. They've tried others, but now they're trying. Now they've even moved to magic in this modern day. They've moved to superstition. But where they've turned is away from the one who can really offer real healing. There are a lot of hurting people today. You see them all the time. You may be one here this morning. Much of the hurt and the pain that people feel today, and you can ask any physician this because I love to talk to some of the doctors in our church, is not located in the physical. Uh, physicians tell me all the time, people are coming to them, asking them to relieve them of that which is, maybe has physical consequences, but the root is not from a physical source. It's from an emotional or spiritual stress. And they're hoping somehow this MD through a needle or a pill can solve their problem. But they can't. So people turn to magical waters. Turn to alcohol. They turn to some therapist hoping that they can lift the depression. They turn to drugs to cope with the guilt. They turn to work to bury the pain or to divorce, to escape the pain or to sex, to numb the pain, to superstitions of every kind. They bring in someone to read their horoscope. They turn to self-help seminars. They look for encouragement from support groups or they line up in the line with all the other victims who can use blame as their therapy. All these quick fixes that somehow is going to turn my life around and is going to spark this new life that I so desperately long to have. But you know what? It doesn't work. Oh, there may be some, some minor relief. Maybe we've worked ourselves up where it almost even feels like we've gotten some relief when we just simply go to reach out for some help. But you know, I counsel with people all the time and I know that for oftentimes, it's only momentary. It's only a momentary sense these quick fixes give. And then what happens and what follows is this gnawing sense of desperateness begins to return. This long shadow of lifelessness begins to fall over my life. And what I feel like is I'm falling even further behind. I thought I was making some progress. Now I feel like I'm even further behind and life becomes more desperate to me. 
I might not show it on the outside like Bill, but inside I feel that. Life's now become much more complex and much more ugly in sorts, much more dry, like it's just mechanical. But look at verses 5 through 7. It says, and this certain man was here. It doesn't tell us his name. It just says he was a certain man who had been 38 years in his sickness. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him and said, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Boy, is that not like modern life? They always get there before me. You know that therapy session? It really helped such and such. But when I got there, it just somehow didn't work for me. It did helped her, but not me. That seminar changed that person's life. But when I got to it, or that new drug, it really helped Betty, but it didn't help me. Somehow I'm always the last to get there when it's all over. That seems to be what people repeat over and over again. I don't have anybody. I'd like to get there. It probably would work, but no man can help me get there. And I'm just always last. Talk about a guy hopelessly behind. It's discouraging to read 38 years He's been in that condition. And we're not told exactly what the nature of his illness was, but we are told later, after all this concludes to a happy ending, what the source of his sickness is. Look at verse 14. Because afterwards it says, Jesus found him in the temple. That is after this man had been made well. And he said to him, behold, you have become well. And then he says, listen, because these are ugly words. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. Hmm. So what's the root cause of his illness? It's a tough word today to even utter. Now it probably had all kinds of expressions. Maybe the guy suffered physically from chronic fatigue syndrome. Maybe he was a manic depressive. Uh, maybe he had all kinds of, of ulcers or whatever from the stress that he had been under because of what? His sin. Those consequences, those physical consequences are real. You can touch them and feel them, but the source is not because you have some bacteria or virus. You've got a deeper sickness. Separation from God. You know, one of the greatest verses, you might even mark it down, that tells us the best definition of sin in all the Bible is Isaiah 53, 6. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray, each to our own what? way. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. See, going your own independent way, it may look good to society, like Bill said, but it's still called in heaven sin because it has no thought of God, no interest in God, no call of God to be involved with me. I just want to do it my way. And the Bible calls that sin. Independence, separation. There are many people who live like that. And over time, life just doesn't work the way they thought it was going to. There become, there, even in the best of life, there becomes hard consequences to that kind of lifestyle completely separated from God. And they begin to mount up over a period of time. And as those symptoms mount up, we begin to look for quick fixes to get rid of the consequences. And those don't work. 
And if we ever get desperate enough, we'll even turn to things that are magical, like crystals or certain healing potions or magical retreats. You know, I had a man who was dying of cancer tell me, who had never been in the church, but I went to see him. And, and he was never really interested in spiritual things, and yet, in the months before his death, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in a desperate attempt to have one personal audience with a famous faith healer, because he wanted the quick fix. But it didn't work. But somehow, that doesn't keep us from continually seeking them. And that's what this guy teaches us. Because if you'll notice, he's been sick for 38 years. Now, he's not been at the Pool of Bethesda 38 years. For maybe the last 37 years, he's been trying all kinds of other fixes to his problem, his sin problem. But none of them have worked. But rather than him figuring out those things don't work, now he's desperate and now he's at these magic waters trying to make them work. And that leads us to the first principle of what it takes to have a new life comeback. And this is what it is. Somewhere as you're falling behind, somehow you must finally recognize that what you've been doing just isn't going to work. Just isn't going to work. In 1969, Texas ran against us the ball for three and a half quarters, and it never worked because we were the number one defense in the nation. But they finally figured out you don't run, you pass. And with one pass, they won. But some people never figured out that what they're doing just doesn't work. You know, when I'm playing computer games with my boys, I try it the old-fashioned way. And I remember playing one game, losing again and again, and my boy finally looked at me with exasperation. He said, get over it, Dad. Just get over it. It's not going to work, in other words. You need to try it my way. Let me show you how to do it. Max Lucado tells of walking through a cemetery and finding a tombstone that marks the grave of one lady named Grace Llewellyn Smith. There's no date of birth, no date of death, just the names of her two husbands and this epitaph. Sleeps, but rests not. Loved, but was loved not. Tried to please, but pleased not. Died as she lived, alone. And then Lucado asked this question. I wonder if she caused herself that pain. I wonder. Perhaps through two husbands, she kept trying to make a relationship of intimacy work her way. Her way. Perhaps through two marriages, she insisted the problem was not in her methods. It was in her men. And she fell further and further behind. Oh, she could argue her case. She felt like it was the right thing to do. And so she died as she lived. Alone. I've got a good friend by the name of Bob Buford who's a great business entrepreneur. He's written a book called Halftime. Here's what he says. During the first half of your life, if you're like me, you probably did not have time to think about how you would spend the rest of your life. You probably rushed through college, fell in love, married, embarked on a career, climbed upward and acquired many things to help make the journey comfortable. But sooner or later, you begin to wonder if this is as good as it gets. As life moves on, the thrills 
are gone. You may have taken some vicious hits along the way. A good share of men and women finish the first half of their life in pain. They don't let people know it, but it's sometimes serious pain. Divorce, too much alcohol, not enough time for your kids, guilt, loneliness. You started out with good intentions, but now, are you smart enough to see you cannot play the second half of your life as you did the first? Are you? That's a good question. Because you see, new life comebacks, they will always require of you, first and foremost, that you recognize that what you've been doing is not working. And you'll go to the source of new life. There's a second principle here, and it revolves around a question. You probably saw it as I read it. Because Jesus sees this guy in his affliction for 38 years, and he asked him a question that almost sounds downright insensitive. He says to him, do you wish to get well? <laughs> what do you mean? Do you wish to get well? I've been here for 38 years trying to get well. It seems insensitive, but you know, when I read it from my perspective, then again, it's really right on target. He's asking the deeper question. And in the ministry, you see all kinds of people who are seeking, I want you to listen, who are seeking to get well and keep their disease. And this deeper question goes to the heart of that problem. We see people who want a good marriage, but they also want to keep being selfish. We see people who want a good job, they just want, don't want to respect authority and work hard. We see people who want respect, but they just want to be immoral. But they want you to respect them. We see people who want a fine family, they just want to work all the time. But they really do want a good family. We see people who want the cure, they just want to keep the disease. It's kind of an odd mixture that people go through and they just don't get it. And, and sometimes it's just, there needs to be this piercing question. Hey bud, do you really want to get well? Or is, are these little attempts at healing, are they just your way of paying penance for a lifestyle that, well, really you want to keep? And you're just putting off the inevitable because you really want to keep on the thing that's excruciatingly painful. Do you want to get well? See, when Jesus asked this man this question, he said, do you really want a new life? Or is what you want the old life with no consequences? If you want that brother, it doesn't work. You're just going to stay sicker and sicker and the score is going to mount up and time is going to run out. You see, the second principle of a new life comeback is very simple. All these are very simple, but life really is simple. And it's just this. Everyone must decide if they really want a new life. One that's totally overhaul. One that operates on different principles. One that comes from a different authority than just you making it up as you go. You have to make that decision. Now, evidently, this man wanted that. It doesn't come across that way when he speaks in verse 7, but evidently, Jesus could see that sincerely by the look on his face, he wanted a new life, and so Jesus gave it to him. And notice in verses 8 and 9, he says to him, Arise, take up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet, and he began to walk. 
That sounds pretty simple, but you know what? It wasn't. Do you see all the process behind that? Leading up to that point? And even when Jesus said, arise, take up your pallet and walk, the guy could have sat there, like some people do, and say, well, would you help me up? There's no faith in that, is there? Or they could say, can I, can I call somebody to kind of pull me up? Or let me roll up my pallet and think about it for a while. See, he doesn't do any of those things. What he does is exactly what Jesus told him to do. He said, arise. And the guy got up. Take up your pallet. He did that. Walk. He did it. Just like Jesus prescribed it. And you know what? There's a lesson in that for anyone wanting a new life comeback. And that is you can't do it your way anymore. You got to know what you've been doing is not working. You got to realize that you really want a new way of life. And then for the first time in your life, just like Bill Hoy, you got to break. And you've got to say, I'm going to do it the way the Lord of life has told me to do it. And I'm going to follow the instructions exactly. And if you do, then you get what he gets. And that's a new life. A whole new life. Well, where are you this Easter morning? I mean, we're celebrating the greatest comeback ever, but it doesn't mean anything if you're not part of it. If you're not one of the guys jumping on the team captain, slapping him on the back, celebrating your own new life comeback. Where, where are you this morning? Is your life in need of a comeback? That, that's a good question, isn't it? It's a fair question today. You know, some of you might be sitting out there and when I mentioned 38 years, somebody say, you know, I've been in this marriage 38 years. It's not working. Why isn't it working? I've been, I've been raising these kids for 15 years. They're not working. <laughs> or maybe there's something that's just been bubbling in there for years that you did. And anytime anybody gets anywhere close to it, you just feel guilt and hurt and bitterness. You're going to live in that forever? Maybe you are like some who all of a sudden with a medical report, life looks a lot shorter. And the intellectual discussions about life after death, they're not as exciting anymore to talk about. You're wanting to know what happens to me. Are you in need of that kind of comeback? See, that's what Easter is all about. It's about new life. It's about comebacks. You know, everything Jesus said to this man in John 5 is time-bound, though. I want you to look at verse 8 again, because when he says arise, he says it to him. You might circle those two little words. He said it to him. He didn't say it to us. He said it to him. These were addressed to him only. But you know, when all of this falls out at the press conference afterwards, and that's what happens afterwards, Jesus starts talking in words that transcend time. Some of his words were time-bound. Some of his proclamations were timeless. I want you to look at verse 24 because now he says something that goes beyond the situation to all of us. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the word there is plural, you, to you, not to him anymore. It's to you all. And here's what I say to everyone, if they'll just listen to every age, to every culture, to every race, to you all. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, he has eternal life. 
and does not come into judgment for the errors of his life, but he passes out of death into life. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you all, an hour is coming and now is. In other words, right now, this is true. That when the dead hear the voice of the Son of God, and you can hear that at any time, even this morning. Those who hear shall live. That's the offer of Easter. That's the offer of this morning. To anyone who will just simply hear. There's life on the other side. But to hear, you've got to go through the model, the pattern. To hear, you've got to admit that what you've been doing isn't working. You know the best question I could ask you this morning? Is it? I want you to think about your life. Is it? Is it working? Or is there a sense of decline? Is there kind of a strange shadow, a gnawing emptiness that more does not provide satisfaction for? It's not going to. Because that hole was never meant to be filled except with one person. And he rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. Is it? If you come to that point, then you've got to ask yourself the question, do I? Do I want that new life? Am I ready to give up control and turn it over to someone else? And then if you can answer that question, then all that's left is are you ready to heed the call of Jesus Christ on your life? I've been privileged to be at many miraculous moments, just tiny moments where the pride was gone, the questions were gone, the excuses were gone, and the quick fixes were fallen on the floor. And just in that sliver of moment, in real humility, that person has bowed their head and said, I want to invite you, the risen Christ, into me, into me to forgive, to clean out, to rearrange. I'm, no excuses, no limitations. I'm giving up my life to you. And you know what happens? In those moments, for those people, in that moment, they move from somebody who needs no more proof about empty tombs and witnesses that they've never met 2,000 years ago because the living proof is birthed in them. Would you like that this morning? Would you like to start anew? Would you like to join the teammates who are jumping on the person who authored New Life, celebrating it with him? Then you can with a simple prayer. And I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads with me and let's pray together. Would you do that? Let's just take a moment of reflection as we finish here this morning, this great Easter morning. And you ask yourself, am I ready for Jesus Christ? Because if you're ready, He's ready, I can promise you. Listen to His words. I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. I am the light of the world. 
And he who believes in me shall no longer walk in darkness. I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me shall live even if he dies. I am the way. And I am the truth. And I am the life. And no one will come to God but through me. You know, in the silence of this moment, I've done all I can do. It's now between you and the risen Christ. And if you hear His voice, His spiritual voice, pounding in your breast, in your soul, in your life, it's time to reach out and take that life for your own. If you will do that, then next Easter, it won't be us talking about Jesus' comeback and celebrating it. We'll be celebrating yours too. Father, we thank you for what, a, what this day stands for, for how it moves humanity out of hopelessness and despair, how it rules over emptiness and those things that will never fill us, no matter how hard we try. But it moves us to an eternal kingdom with an eternal Lord who lives forever and who's demonstrated for us in every way He could that He has power over all of life. But most of all, He has the power to give it. I pray that there would be no man, no woman, in whatever condition they find themselves this morning, who would leave here without looking up to you and saying, Oh, Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. I am allowing him to come in and give me a whole new way of life. Lord, thank you for the resurrection that you bring with that prayer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.